That background noise got to go, though. He sounded okay. Who could have sounded worse? Could have sounded worse. One of the best parts about sports is the fact that we can take a look at our teams and take a look at the teams that we play against. And we can talk about their successes. The Philadelphia Flyers have been talking about their Stanley Cup wins winning back-to-back in the mid-70s for a very long time. And it's pretty much impossible to be a fan of the sport without knowing that the last time the Toronto Maple Leafs won the Stanley Cup was in 1967. Either their fans will remind you, or people who cheer for other teams will remind you. But the opposite end of that spectrum is who lost. Who had the worst seasons? Nowadays, whenever a team finishes dead last in the league, they have a chance to pick first overall. Some teams even aim to have that be their goal for the season. The year that Connor McDavid and Jack Eichel were drafted, Arizona and Buffalo were in a massive arms race, but an opposite of an arms race, try and see who could be the worst team in the league. Every time Buffalo won a game, they would trade the goaltender that won because they're just trying to be worse. So let's venture to the bottom of the NHL team records table. The Quebec Bulldogs and Philadelphia Quakers had only four wins each in their worst seasons. They tied for the fewest wins in NHL history, but they were smaller seasons though, and their franchises didn't really last for a long time. Early iterations of the Toronto Arenas Pittsburgh Pirates and Hamilton Tigers only won five games. The Bruins in 1924 and 1925 sat there with six wins, but again, that was only a 30-game season. It wasn't a full-length season as we know it is today. The first real eye-catching spot on this list comes at around the seventh mark, and it was a 1943-1944 season. The Second World War had started without the direct involvement of the U.S. forces. However, their country was dedicated to supporting and supplying military and other logistical support to the Allied forces. But in 1941, things changed. The Imperial Army of Japan attacked Pearl Harbor, and the U.S. was left without much of a choice other than to join the war. After declaring war in Japan, Germany in turn declared war against the U.S., and the Allies now had a new partner. Now, while under scrutiny, the National Hockey League continued to operate throughout the war, with the idea that they were providing a service to the home front as a method of entertainment, while also doing their best to not impede the progress of the armed forces, especially if the desire of their players was to participate in the war efforts. So in this context, we get a team during the 1943-1944 season that emerged to take a spot in our conversation of the worst team in NHL history. The New York Rangers had a really, really rough season. And when we look back at their history, they actually have a pretty long extended history of not winning. They are an original six franchise. Those are some of the most well-known teams in the NHL. And when we look at their valuation, they're the most valuable team in the NHL, clocking in well over $2 billion. So where is this disconnect? They're wildly successful off the ice, but can we make a case for them for being the least successful on ice team? Well, in 1943 and 1944, it's not that hard to make that argument. Well, it's not hard to argue that they were the worst team in NHL history, and we'll take a look at why in a minute. 
the season that they had was so connected to other things. And this is the wonderful thing about hockey history is that we can take a look at a single individual stat. The fact that they had the worst NHL season, they had, they had a super low amount of wins. And we can connect them and their players to other parts of NHL history. So that's going to be our argument for today. I'm going to propose that the 1943 and 1944 New York Rangers are the most interesting New York Rangers season. They individually had the most interesting year out of any of the years the New York Rangers have existed, from the mid-1920s up until today. So, let's take a look at why I think this. Let's take a look at how their season went, who was involved, how did it play out, how was the war connected to it all, and in the end, why did they suck so bad? Hi, I'm Travis Duncan, and I will fight you. I will lose, but I will fight you. This is Storytime Hockey. So, of course, we can't really just start in 1943-44. That doesn't make any sense. Let's jump back a few years. In 1941 and 1942, the New York Rangers had finished in first place. Ignoring the fact that the Rangers finished in first place, this year in hockey was noteworthy on its own. It was the last year of existence for their crosstown rivals, the Brooklyn Americans. On December 9, 1941, the Chicago and Bruins game was delayed for a half hour as President Roosevelt declared war and the Montreal Canadiens almost moved to Cleveland. We gotta look into that. That's, that's a thing. The Rangers finished with 60 points, thanks to 29 wins, 17 losses, and 2 ties. While they outscored their opponents handily, the standings gave a false impression of their success. They weren't really ahead of their opposition by any significant amount. Compared to their 29 wins and 60 points, the Leafs had 27 and 57, and the Bruins had 25 and 56. The top three were all pretty close. The Rangers got a bye in the first round, and they met Toronto in the semifinals, where the Leafs would beat them in six games. The Rangers, however, were able to celebrate the Calder Trophy, thanks to Grant Warwick, who had recorded 33 points in 44 games. That following season, the NHL in the US began to really start to see the effects of the World War on their manpower. A few of the Rangers were drafted into the army and a few players suffered a couple tough injuries. Grant Warwick would struggle throughout the year to improve and only added two points to his previous total. They would only record 11 wins, allowing a whopping 253 goals in the process. And while the previous year showed closer finishes by the other teams in the league, the Rangers were 19 points behind Chicago in 5th and 31 points behind league leader Bruins. Now, the Rangers honestly just felt that this was a one-off. The squad still had experienced players in their lineup. They had Brian Hextall and Phil Watson and even Lynn Patrick. Part of the issue, though, was inconsistency and injuries in net. In their 50-game season, they started four different goalies. Lionel Bouvret lost his only game, letting in six goals. Steve Buzinski played nine. He won two of those, but had a 5.89 GAA. Bill Beveridge started in 18, and he had a 5.24 goals against average. Only had four wins. Starter Jimmy Franks played 23 games with five wins and he had 103 goals against. His GAA came in at 4.48. None of these goalies would return the next year. That next year though, that's the one we're going to focus in on. That's the 1943-44 season. 
Early in the preparations for this season, it became clear that the squad was going to have to have some player turnover. Countries around the world were moving further and further into a total war effort. With the war in Europe reaching its sixth year, different restrictions were having impacts outside of the war. One of these was a travel restriction. Whether it was related to being an essential worker, or if it was determined that you needed to be contributing to the armed forces, nations including Canada and the US implemented travel restrictions. This was also connected to the preservation of resources, including food and fuel. Because of these restrictions, the Rangers were unable to bring back across the border players such as Phil Watson and Dutch Hiller. Now, leading up to this, Phil Watson was a really important player for the Rangers. And he's a wildly interesting player in his own. This is the first tangent we need to kind of go off on and take a look at who this player was. He played for 12 years in the NHL, split between Montreal and New York. But then he also coached the Rangers for five years and then the Bruins for three. Even outside the NHL, he coached the New York Rovers, Quebec Citadels, Providence Reds, Buffalo Bisons, and Quebec Aces. All of these squads had a significant contribution to the early development of the NHL. So after he spent seven years with the Rangers, the Canadian government intervened with their restrictions during the summer of 1943. They said that he had to return to Canada to perform war work. He worked for Fairchild Aircraft in Canada, and as the Second World War progressed, it became clear that the war in the air was becoming much more important in this theater than it had been during the First World War. Because of this, he would only be able to play for one of the two Canadian franchises, and an agreement was worked out that he could be loaned to the Habs for the year in exchange for Dutch Hiller and Joe Sands. Now, Sands didn't really impact the squad that much that year. He played nine games, recorded two assists. Eventually, he returned to the Pasadena Panthers of the California Hockey League, which you didn't know existed. It could totally be made up. It's real. But nobody knew that. Hiller proved a good pickup and contributed strongly to the Rangers' efforts that season. Watson would return to the Rangers the next year, after a season in Montreal, where he would actually have 49 points in 44 games. Their goaltending situation that year would be a complete storyline of its own. With their goaltenders the year before, mostly clearing out, and also trending towards the older side of the NHL, the Rangers went young in net. They brought in Ken McCauley, who would play in every single game for the team. On the stat line, though, appearing in only one game, was a random player that didn't even belong to them. His name was Harry Lumley, and he was 17 years old, and he's in the Hockey Hall of Fame. Wait, what? So, Harry Lumley is worth his own dive here for a second. He was from Owen Sound, Ontario, and he quickly became known as a potential top-tier goaltender. Players belong to NHL franchises based off their big league club sponsorships. Teams would sponsor lower-level teams, and if players play for that team, they therefore belong to the NHL franchise. The Montreal Canadiens bought an entire league just to get access to Jean Beliveau. Bobby Orr signed a deal when he was 15 within the Bruins organization to set him up with the franchise. So Harry Lumley, though, he played for a team in Owen Sound that didn't have a sponsorship. And whether they thought they were funny or if they were just trying to figure things out, they didn't have a sponsorship. So looking to get one, they did what anyone else would do. They named their team something sarcastic in an attempt to get a sponsor. They called themselves the Owen Sound Orphans. 
that should be it. That's the end of the podcast. That That's awesome. So at this time, NHL teams only really carried one goaltender. The rule to carry two goalies only occurred in 1964. Prior to this, backup goalies usually didn't dress, except for the case of injuries. They just watched from the stands. Until 1950, the home team had an emergency goalie called the house goalie. Teams almost exclusively traveled with one netminder, and the house goalie would serve as the backup goaltender. If a team did have two goalies, they didn't want him just sitting there, so he often played in the minors. So, we have house goalies, which are essentially the emergency backup goalies, and really I'm just saying this as an excuse to mention David Ayers. Hi, Lee fans. How you doing? You good? You alright? Mitch Marner's pretty good, eh? Can't wait for Matthews to sign in Arizona. Going back to college. Or to college for the first time. Matthews is going to college. So that 1943-44 year was really strange for Harry Lumley. He started the year with the Indianapolis Capitals in the American Hockey League. They were an affiliate of the Detroit Red Wings. That's who he was with. He made his debut with the NHL squad on December 19, 1943, at the age of 17. This established one of the records in the NHL that probably will never be broken. There's a couple of those that are out there. We look at Wayne Gretzky's point total and how likely no one is ever going to touch that. I know Ovechkin is closing in on the goal record, but I feel like the points are pretty safe. Another one being Dave Schultz's penalty minute record. You just can't play hockey that way anymore. You can't have a player on your team collecting penalty minutes at the rate he did. So that's pretty safe. And on that night in December, when Lumley started for the Detroit Red Wings, he was only 17 years old. He became the youngest goaltender to play in an NHL game. He's not the youngest player though. Armand Guidolin played a game at the age of 16 in 1942. So when Lumley stepped on the ice on December 19th, 1943, he actually won a game. He won 6-2. And just for fun, it was against the Rangers team that we're talking about today. A few nights later, on December 23rd, 1943, he was sitting in the stands watching the game as the Rangers played the Red Wings again. Rangers goalie Ken McCauley went down injured and Lumley would have to suit up and play for the team that he first appeared at playing against. He led in one goal as the Red Wings, which are his team, would win 5-3. But he was in net for the Rangers, where he lost. So saying which team was his is kind of confusing. Anyways, he played for the Red Wings one night and got a win as the youngest goaltender in NHL history. And then like four nights later, played for a different team for 20 minutes and lost. But his team won. You get that? Hockey fans, light the lamp this winter with DraftKings Sportsbook an official sports betting partner of the NHL. New customers can bet $5 pregame money line on any NHL team to win their game and get $150 in free bets if they win. If that wasn't enough excitement, you can turn small bets into bigger payout with same-game parlays. Combine multiple bets, like which team will win, how many goals will be scored, and more for your shot to win an even bigger payout. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use promo code THPN, bet $5 on any NHL team to win their game, and get $150 in free bets if they do. Only at DraftKings Sportsbook with code THPN. Minimum age and eligibility restrictions apply. Please see the show notes for details. 
So at the start of the season that we're looking at, the Rangers were playing a little bit shorthanded. Some of those players had not really returned from service. Some had been caught up in travel restrictions. Some had just traveled off to participate in the war. In game one of that season, they lost 5-2 to two of the Maple Leafs. And their two goals they scored were honestly just consolation prizes. They were already down 5 nothing. They'd lose to the Wings 8-3, and then they would lose to Montreal, Chicago, and Toronto. Going into their sixth game, their team needed two things. They needed a spark, and they needed another player. They were playing shorthanded. Frank Boucher was the head coach, and he had been playing professionally since the 1921-22 season, and retired as a player in 1938. Since they needed a spark, and they needed a player, and he figured that the coach suiting up was a pretty good spark, he laced up and got on the ice at the age of 40. He'd record four goals and ten assists across the season. He didn't play all the games. Again, he was 40. But your coach saying, nah, this isn't good enough, just watch? That's pretty insane. It didn't really make things better, though. He entered the lineup during the team's sixth game, which was a 6-2 loss against the Bruins. And then game seven was a 10-5 loss against the Blackhawks. Chicago actually scored eight of those goals in the final 20 minutes to take the game away from the Rangers. They'd lose more competitive games, but not close games, against Detroit, Toronto, Boston, and then Montreal. And on November 28, 1943, they finally competed in a game, but they still couldn't pull off a win. They tied 2-2 against the Montreal Canadiens. Brian Hextall opened the scoring early for the Rangers, Three minutes in with a goal from Dutch Hiller and Ozzy Obashan. Reagan's lift would even it up for the Habs late in the first. Mike McMahon would put the Habs up by one about eight minutes into the second. Jack McDonald would bring the Rangers even and the third period was scoreless. It wasn't a victory, but it was something. Most fans were hopeful that the Rangers would begin to collect some points, show some progress towards being a competitive team again. But they immediately followed up that tie with an 11-4 loss on the road to Toronto, a 7-6 loss in Chicago, and a 9-6 loss in Boston. And that just put them back on the losing streak. And they were opening their season with zero wins, 14 losses, and a tie. During the start of the season, though, management wasn't sitting idly by. Wilfred McDonald was brought in from the Maple Leafs early in the season. Side note, good luck figuring out when that trade happened. That information just doesn't exist. Everyone just says November 1st, but no one actually knows, and everywhere I look just says, it happened some point early in November, we're just going to write down the first. Better known as Bucko, he'd already won three Stanley Cups, two in 36 and 37 with the Wings, and then again in 42 with Toronto. And not only was Bucko McDonald a great hockey player, but he had a significant contribution to the world of sport, specifically senior men's lacrosse. He won the Man Cup, Canada's senior men's championship for field lacrosse with the Brampton Excelsiors. The Ontario Lacrosse Association named their highest scoring player award after him. He was even inducted to the Canadian Lacrosse Hall of Fame in 1971. He would then settle in the Paris Sound area and worked as a member of parliament in 1949 to 1954. Following politics, he went on to coach the Rochester Americans, and during his time in Paris Sound, he even coached some guy who was like 11 or 12 years old at the time, Bobby Orr, some dude. And this is just part of what's so interesting about this season in Rangers history. We're already making a case for them to be the worst team in NHL history. 
that's established, we're going to continue on that timeline. We already talked about how Harry Lumley made his NHL debut against the Rangers, won that game, and then a couple nights later had to play for the Rangers and would lose. And now we've got this guy who has this insane contribution to the world of sport outside of playing. And then just had an interesting life post-playing career too. Management kept going though. They needed to do a couple more things. We already mentioned Ozzy Obashan. He was brought in. Ab DeMarco and Chuck Scherza were brought in as well. All three were traded for cash considerations. For different reasons, the Rangers didn't really have the assets to trade the other direction. Although cash considerations was very common at the time. Can you imagine right now just trading a player for like 86 bucks? Gordy Bell was a player that the Rangers had lost to the war effort. He wasn't a long-term solution in that though. He wouldn't ever actually play for the Rangers. He moved to the Cornwallis military base where he joined the Canadian Navy and was based out of Deep Brook, Nova Scotia. Chuck Rayner would join the Rangers following the folding of the Brooklyn Americans but immediately moved to serve as a member in the Royal Canadian Navy, based out of Victoria, British Columbia. He'd return in 1945 and play for the Rangers for seven seasons, including six as a starting goalie. The Rangers, though, during this time frame were continuing to be not a good hockey team, and their futility led to him never having a winning record, even though, because of his accomplishments and his achievements on the ice just as an individual, he won the Hart Trophy as league MVP in 1950. He was well known for his puck handling and trying to score goals on more than one occasion, which would have just been the cherry on top of the season if the Rangers had lost all their games, had a terrible time, and their goalie of the future had left to go to the military but then came back and actually scored a goal. You know, but ifs and buts. There was a third person though that thanks to the war effort, the Rangers did not have access to. And he joined the Canadian military in their recruitment efforts, and he had a long-lasting impact on hockey. In 1942, Red Dudley Garrett was traded with Nat Goldrub to the Rangers for Babe Pratt. Babe Pratt was a pretty good player. He would win the Hart Trophy in 1945. He's an interesting side note of his own. He had won the Cup with the Rangers in 1940, and he would win the Cup with the Leafs in 1945. However, in 1946, he was caught betting on games and suspended from the league. After promising not to gamble anymore, which is absolutely how gambling works, just promise not to do it anymore, I swear. He was reinstated by the Maple Leafs after that. Despite this hiccup, he was enshrined in the Hockey Hall of Fame in 1966. So Red Dudley Garrett was only 18 when he was traded to the Rangers. He played 23 games with them, recorded a goal and an assist, had 18 penalty minutes, but then left and moved to Canada to join the Navy. It was called the war during the 1942 and 1943 season. He served just over a full year in the military. On November 25, 1944, he and 91 crewmates aboard the naval ship HMCS Schwenigen were sunk by a German U-boat just off the coast of Newfoundland. Garrett was known to write letters home frequently. In 42, he wrote that he had gotten word that he was about to suit up for his first NHL game on November 28th. On the 29th of August 1944, he wrote that, that even though he'd been in the Navy for a year, it had felt like a lifetime. On October 29th, 1944, he wrote about his hockey season based in Nova Scotia and how his return to the NHL would come soon enough. Though he didn't play in the 43-44 season, Garrett's death left a hole in the roster of the Rangers. 
and it demonstrates some of the struggles of running a franchise through the time of war. And every time you have a conversation about how hard is it to run a franchise throughout the war, then the conversation shifts to should you be running a franchise during the war? Back to the Rangers season, after a tie against Montreal, they would lose three more games, including an 11-4 loss the night after their tie against the Maple Leafs. On December 12th, they played the Bruins at home in their 16th game of the season. Boston took the lead from Pep Gwendolyn and Bill Cowley. Chuck Scherzer scored one before the end of the first to give the Rangers a chance. Norm Caladine would put the Bruins up by two again on the power play, but the Rangers' Brian Hextall would draw them close again 37 seconds later. Hextall would tally another with three and a half minutes left to draw the game level. In the third period, Alt Heller put them in the lead, three minutes in, and the Rangers would score goals 18 seconds apart from Ozzy Obishon and Chuck Scherza to give them six on the night. Bill Cowley would score one more for the Bruins, but that was too late. They tested the Rangers, but there would be no more scoring. The Rangers finally won a game. Game 16, they won 6-4. They would even win the next game, 5-1 over Toronto. Cue Will Ferrell, we're going streaking. Well, not really. They'd follow up their next game in Toronto with 4 nothing loss. And then the following game in Boston, they lost 13-3. They'd go on to lose all of their games through January 16th, where on the second of a back-to-back, they actually beat the Bruins 8-6. That's three Ws. They'd follow that with a win in Toronto, 5-1 a few nights later. That's four. Since nothing could go well, of course, for an extended period of time, they'd kick off their next losing streak. And what a way to kick it off. January 23rd, the Rangers played the Detroit Red Wings in front of 12,293 fans. The game started out normally enough for the Rangers in this awful season, where they let in one goal early, one goal late, and the first was 2-0, and then the Rangers would you know, not really show up for the rest of the game. The Red Wings would put in five in the second period and eight in the third, including two goals eight seconds apart by Sid Howe. Murray Armstrong would have two goals and three assists. Sid Howe had a hat trick with two apples, including his 149th goal to take the lead for the club's all-time leading goal scorer. Joe Carveth had five assists. Rangers goalie McCauley stopped 43 shots, but 15 others still got by him. Connie Dion was the goalie at the other end of the ice. He only faced nine shots. It still stands as the worst loss in NHL history. So let's go back to our idea here. This is the worst team in NHL history. Not only are we going to talk about their overall season being just truly terrible, and we've talked about a couple games where they genuinely got blown out with goals against into the double digits. But this stands as the worst loss in NHL history. It was 15 0. Now, having come off two wins, and then following it up with whatever the 15-0 game was, you think the Rangers might come back out with some desire for vengeance, some pride, some desire to fight back against what had been, or at this point, a very difficult season. But their team was wildly weakened by the war effort. They couldn't keep up with the rest of the league. They would tie Detroit on the 6th of February. They would tie Detroit again on the 24th of February. And in March, they would tie Boston and Chicago. However, every other game that year they lost, and some of them quite badly, quite dramatically. The 3rd of February game against Detroit, they lost 12-2. On March 4th, they actually compete in a crazy game, where they lost 10-9 against the Boston Bruins. That game tied for second place 
as the highest goal scoring games in NHL history, currently along with six other games. On January 1st, 1920, the Montreal Canadiens beat the Toronto St. Patrick's 14-7. That combined for 21 goals. Close behind them is the Oilers and Hawks games in 1985, where the Oilers won 12-8. And for good measure, this Rangers squad would close out their season with an 11-2 loss in Montreal and then a 6-1 loss against the Habs at home. That's rough. So the final season record was 6-39-5. The Rangers had the lowest number of victories in an entire season in the NHL with only 6 games. This is probably the worst NHL season of all time. I don't think that's a stretch. When we look back closer at those other teams that kind of are at the bottom of those standings, the Quakers of 1930 and 31 had four wins, 36 games, and four losses. They were flash in the pan. They did not last long in the NHL. They did not belong here. The Pittsburgh Pirates of 1929 and 1930 had 44 games in their season as well. They had a record of 5, 36, and 3. The difference between the season we're looking at here and those of the Pirates and the Quakers is that the Quakers and Pirates are gone. They don't exist anymore. Well, the Pittsburgh Pirates do, but probably better they change sports. Whether you like it or not, we go and take a look at the Rangers' success over the entirety of their time. They were founded in 1926. They haven't won a lot. They're an original six franchise. They played hockey during a time frame where almost everybody made the playoffs. It's like the OHL. Everyone makes it. Even the bad team. And the Rangers have for a very long time been one of the bad teams. And currently they're evaluated as the most valuable franchise in the NHL. They're ahead of the Maple Leafs, who literally, but not literally, kind of literally, have permission to print money in Canada. They're just one of the most valuable franchises in Canada. Not even franchises, companies, entities. They represent a global ambassador and a major representation of Canadian culture. Just behind the Rangers and the Maple Leafs is the Montreal Canadiens, which all the stuff that I just said about the Leafs, I can say for the Habs too. Despite the Rangers' longevity, despite the amount of time they spent in this league and their value and the players that have gone through their franchise, they have not been successful. They won the Stanley Cup in 1928, 1933, 1940, and 1994. So not only have the Rangers experienced a sort of longevity in not being successful that we haven't really seen in the NHL, they also set the bar for losing in an individual season. And I'm fully aware that this sounds like a hit piece. I'm not here to say that the Rangers are the worst. We know the truth. It's the Flyers. But they've set the bar. The Rangers season of 1943 and 1944 shows us just how connected to everything one team can be, but have no success. They're connected to Hall of Fame players. They're connected to records that'll never be broken. They're connected to Hart Trophy candidates and Hart Trophy winners. They're connected to people who have trophies named after them. But against the other teams in the NHL that year, they just couldn't compete. They beat Boston twice, lost seven times, had a tie. Against the Blackhawks, they went 1-7-2. Against Detroit, 1-8-1. One, one. 
they never beat Montreal. They went 0-9-1. And they took two wins away from the Toronto Maple Leafs, but lost eight games. That's an unbelievable stat line. This 1943-1944 New York Rangers team really did set the bar. Not in the way that you would want to, of course. But I don't think it's a stretch to say that this was the worst season in NHL history. Storytime Hockey is written and produced by me, Travis Duncan proud member of the party planning committee thank you for listening please like and subscribe and interact with our podcast wherever you might be able to do that whether it's on spotify by subscribing or rating us on apple podcasts follow us on twitter thank you for listening and we will talk to you again next show